I'm Scott Kerr, and you're listening to Facing the Giants, a podcast where I speak to today's luxury entrepreneurs about taking on the Goliaths of the industry. Today, I'm speaking with Gamze Addis, founder of My Beachy Side, a luxury resort fashion brand launched in 2015, whose hand crocheted and knit clothing are made by underprivileged women in Syria and Gamze's home country of Turkey. Most recently, My Beachy Side collaborated with hit Netflix series Emily in Paris on the show's first ever fashion collection. Welcome, Gamze. Hi, Scott. How are you? I'm good. How are you? Right off the bat, I'd love for you to share your professional background before launching My Beachy Side. Sure. I came to United States for graduate school. And after finishing my graduate school, I moved to New York. And my first job was working in a shipping company. And then after four years, uh, it was my first startup. I opened my own shipping company. And four years after, it was acquired by DHL. And then I joined them as a senior executive. I ran 82 countries in Middle East, Africa, and Russia. It was a quite a colorful journey, 12 years Then I kind of wanted to take a little different approach to my career and then have more time with my son and family. So I went into Wall Street briefly and I worked in a hedge fund a couple of years. Then I reached to a certain age (laughs) and expectations from life that I needed to take some time off to reconnect with my roots. I'm originally Turkish and do something more meaningful. And then I went into a nonprofit world to explore more. What can I do? How can I connect with my roots? And in that time period, I took a little bit of an exciting journey and I became the uh, editor for New York editor for Vogue Turkey. It was uh, launching that year. Mm-hmm. And went into nonprofit. That's really like how my journey before my beaches side shaped me. So what what happened? What you know? What inspired you to launch my beachy side? When did it hit you this idea? I think when I took that time off, and then I start getting involved with the nonprofit world. I traveled a lot to those areas that was difficult and. There was a Syrian refugee epidemic in um, Turkey as I went into the border, thinking that I could do some kind of help and uh, see what can be changed. And in those times, I realized that instead of giving those people help, materialistic help that they need, I think they had um, quite a talent that if there were more jobs for those women especially, it could have been more long-term change for them. And then the idea just said, okay, you know what? Why don't I create something that provides them a job? And what would that be? Those women are usually not allowed to work outside of the home, but extremely talented, skillful uh, due to uh, their like uh, uh, heritage because they're amazing artisans. They can be uh, great sewers and crochet makers and lace makers because they were not allowed to work outside of the house and their education didn't welcome them into the workforce because they didn't have the proper education. So right away, the idea was that, okay, let's create something that we can use those skills, but what would that be? What about like a little bit of a brand that they can crochet and do some stuff? And the journey started that way, to be honest with you, that what I saw in those trips. And then I felt like I'm capable of turning that into something. And the idea, my beachside idea just flourished from that trips. 
and my beachy side has a social awareness element that is key to the brand's mission and vision. You've created economic and growth opportunities for, I don't know, 200 disadvantaged Turkish women and Syrian refugees by employing them to turn your designs into these beautiful hand crocheted luxury clothing items. So can you talk about how you brought this mission-driven strategy to life? Um, you know, it's a great question, Scott. That was the most challenging part, right? Like how you're going to reach those women and how you're going to put them in a, you know, uh, one place that they can all work. We don't hire them to work in a factory setting or we don't hire them to have a full-time job. What we did was opening the workshops in those areas and then um, put our own people who we call them the head of the woman groups, who's also artisans, but they have a little bit better skills to use the computer. They were in the little bit of a uh, business world. Um, so we created safe environments, which we call them our offices in those areas. And then it's a workshop. It's luxurious places than their home. So they can come with their kids. They can learn the techniques, they can learn the styles, and then they can take them home and do at their own speed and do at their own pleasures because those women are not supposed to come nine to five to work. And, and we work with like some nonprofits, like they were um, domestic violence victims protectors in that area. So they were really instrumental helping us to find those women. But well, uh, we needed a safe place for them to come so that their husbands would allow them to come and uh, their kids could come. So we have those places that we call our offices and workshop uh, places, and they have the teachers to teach them the techniques. They already know, they're already great crochet makers, but they have to learn the techniques that we use, quality control measurements, what we are looking into the styles, what's important for us. And they come and use those places as gathering, socializing, and if they need a babysitter, which, you know, the childcare is a problem because they mm -hmm. cannot really leave their kids. So we created those environments that they can come, take the material and take the styles and learn and socialize with other friends and then talk about their problems and then go back home and finish their stuff and bring it back and get their money up front. These women already had crocheting skills. What happens in that part of the world is that traditionally, since those women could not work outside of the house, uh, what happens is they make their own dowry. So they would, of course, come with the skills that they would make their whole clothing for their children. And crochet is uh, historically and traditionally part of the culture. Everybody does before they get married, their house sets and then the furniture coverings. So crochet, lace making, knitting is part of the culture. And most of them come with that skill. Some of them are better than the other, of course. It varies, but um, they come with that skill. Yeah, it's right. the so, gift of Turkey. <laughs> so aside from employment, how else are you helping these women? I think another one is once they join the group, which we reached over 500 women by now, I think what happens is if we see the spark and the talent and then the desire, or some of them are more flexible, we give them the opportunity to become the leader of the groups become their own group heads and then it gives them a little bit of a more minute we teach them the computer skills we teach them how to answer emails how to make excel sheets so those skills eventually will have them have a job somewhere else 
that they could never have those skills somewhere else. And then we would let them have, um, like join the discussions and then send our own people to educate them in other areas and listen to them. I think the main thing we provide is advancement in their current, instead of just being a crochet maker, they could be the group leaders, then they become the managers working our company. So that's really what we provide them for the time being. Could you talk about the conditions they're working in? Uh, conditions are like, of course, they're in their home, right? And what we provide them is our offices. That is, uh, they can cook there. They can eat, they can celebrate their birthdays. They can listen to music. They, as I said, they can bring their children. Um, this is the working environment. But once they take that work and go home, it varies tremendously. Some of them are like retired teachers that their income is not enough. They just want to support their family and they just do it at pleasure time. Some of them are extremely poor and this is really the main source of their household. And so it varies. So we don't have any control of what's their working conditions at their home, but we know that when they come to our places, which they can come anytime they want to, is an escape from their existing conditions and it's much better. Right. What I found really interesting is that you also allow these women to put their own price on their labor and the final product. How does that work? This is a challenging part, right? Because we have to scale our um, things to be, uh, but the, our mission, you know, when we call ourselves sustainable, I think it comes in many forms. You know, we cultivate the local economy, you know, we empower the woman, but fair trade is the very core uh, mission we have. So how we can make that, right? Because every woman can price their unit separately so you have to find a medium for that so our group heads uh, is the first one that does that style and they have a great sense of how many hours it takes to finish that product and what kind of skillship needed to uh, accomplish that product so they kind of know how many hours it will be and then those hours are calculated and translated into pricing so when we ask them uh, the price is we don't ask them individually. There is a like a group effort to say this is going to cost approximately this much. Got and it. this should not be below the uh, minimum wage because uh, sadly, some women would value their work less thinking that they're going to get more job. So right. we have to bring it up. And you have to be careful at the same time that some woman will say, oh, my God, I'm going to do this, but I'm going to charge 10 times. So there is a fair practice and it's identified by the group heads who is also part of those women. They need also they make the money from making it also. So they kind of know the average price. And it's, it's almost like a cooperative, you know, like they make collective price on items before. And once it's established for each collection for six months, they keep that price in. So we establish the price collectively among the women. We don't do that. They kind of agree on that price collectively. And then once it's established, six months, they maintain that pricing and then uh, do, the, otherwise there's no control over 500 women. We, we don't do individual pricing, nah, but it's agreed upon uh, by group heads, by communicating with the woman. And then that's how we take it so far. Uh, oh, got it. <laughs> and it's working so far and it's fair. <laughs> You know, the basic formula for upstart brands these days has been offering high quality products at fair prices, convenience, and storytelling. And with storytelling being one of the most critical differentiators from category incumbents, and there's a certain reliability to the way that these kinds of brands use storytelling to convey what they stand for. Do you think your mission has directly translated into sales? I 
have to be honest with you, Scott. I think when you're a sustainable brand, just because you do good and you do use the right practices and everything that consumer has to choose you. First, you have to still create a product that they love, especially in the fashion world. You cannot just expect that just because you did everything sustainably and correctly, consumer will buy that over something they like. So you have to create a product that it's relevant and it's quality, the pricing and all that stuff. And I think if you ha- if consumer has a choice between the two things that they like, it's beautiful. They want to have something that to feel good as well. So those are the customers that we attract. So they want to look good on top of it. Our mission makes them feel good as well. But if I would say, no, they come and buy our products because of our mission, um, we're not there yet. I don't think any sustainable brand is there yet, um, but that's the mission, right? We want to educate the consumer. We want to make sure that when they have a choice, they should choose the ethically ethically made one. Um, so we, to go back to your question, I would say that our mission translates well when consumer has the choice and see it and love it then they know that it's made ethically and sustainable material and all that, definitely we're the winner. So during the pandemic, many turned to arts and crafts as a form of escapism while in lockdown, handmade and slow fashion really took center stage. Activities traditionally associated with domesticity became an art form during lockdown and crochet became all the rage. It seems many designer brands have picked up on that trend too. Has it also brought attention to your brand? Uh, yes, of course, but it has a, yeah, I mean, how do you say double-edged sword? Um, yes, but in fashion world, the fear is that we don't want crochet to be a hype trend and come and go. So that kind of uh, crochet craziness right now after pandemic was great. I think we're very appreciative that it brought a lot of attention, the warmth. We're so happy with it. But at the same time, you know how fashion world responds to trends and we're the trend makers, right? We jump on anything is hot and trendy. So now there's a lot of crochet in the market, but they're machine made with child labor in some countries that you cannot really call it a crochet, but it looks like crochet. And how it's done, how it's made, if it's, you know, fairly paid, all that, uh, it kills the little bit of the mission and uh, overdoing it, I don't know if it's to our advantage because we don't want crochet to be a hype come and go, but we want that crochet making or knitting or techniques we use is taken into consideration that these are the healthy way of doing things. These are the way crochet should stay in the fashion world and how we can improve it and all that stuff. So I think it's great. Yes, it did bring attention to us, but it brought also um, unfair (laughs) visibility to the other brands that they're not doing it correctly. Machine-made crochet is not crochet, in my opinion. I don't want to sound so obnoxious about it, but this is my humble opinion. And you say My Beachy Side is a sustainable brand. Yes, crochet already helps the earth because it fights fast fashion. So does it use eco-friendly material yarns? And, you know, what are you doing to minimize industrial waste and carbon emissions? Great question. Um, you know, crochet by nature, we just know how, many, how much yarn we'll need before we start the production. So we can buy exactly the right amount of yarn. So there's no overcutting, overweight. So we know exactly how much yarn we're going to need in each color. So we do our buying accordingly. So there, the waste is right. By a technique, you know, you don't use sewing machines. You don't use electricity. You just use your uh, 
hook and yarn. So it's very environmentally friendly from that aspect. On the other hand, you know, sustainability is not just using the um, sustainable materials, right? The fabrics. I think using what's left in the market and then using those leftovers so they don't go into waste pile is also sustainable technique. So what we do is we do shop locally. So our yarns are not traveling the world 10 times before it reaches us. And we use what's left, you know, in the market. So it helps us. I think it helps the environment not to contribute more. Whoever contributed, we take even that and put them into production. So these are our efforts. And then we use some, uh, of course, we try to choose natural uh, yarn and natural fabrics, but we're very cautious of when they say it's sustainable um, fabric or yarn. We want to make sure that it's really, really not the hype, but the real deal. And the crochet process requires close attention to detail and meticulous focus from the producers as everything is handmade. So given the time it takes to produce crocheted items, is it possible for my, my beachy site to scale? I would say yes, with a confidence. The reason is, <clears throat> the, 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 here is the you know, uh, magic formula for us. What we created in each location can be duplicated so our army can grow. And then we kind of decided that instead of making one of a kind pieces, that takes like, you know, a month to finish, we decided to have fabric styles as well. So we're into like ready to wear materials, but we accessorize them with the crochet pieces. So um, not all our collection is head to toe crochet. So this gives us an opportunity to work with artisans that less skilled. So they would do cover the buttons with crochet or they would do the trims with crochet. So uh, scaling is in the, magic of finding more woman groups right and believe me in 20 years we will still be finding those moments we will still be able to scale them because there's so much need and so much woman out there and it's all about if the company grows it's easy to manage and scale uh, and then you can modify your collection um, that you know like instead of making like everything handmade you can kind of incorporate in the small details to the collection so after the clothing is hand produced by these talented women, where does it go from there? What's what's the process like after that? Uh, once they come back to our offices in the original location, they have the quality control and are you know about pressing and labels attached and packing and put the stickers. And then the final quality control is done by our own headquarters, and they go back to the locations. They make sure everything is right, approved, and then they got sent to Istanbul, where is our main hub. Then the Europe distribution goes from Istanbul and then uh, anything comes to US is distributed from here. And that's really the simple process. It's just made, packed, and then comes to Istanbul and distributed to the world from there on. I would imagine the COVID-19 pandemic had an impact on the handmade product sector. The artisans that make up much of the handmade products workforce are the world's most vulnerable workers. What were the challenges that my Bishi side had from this disruption? I think we had the luck and the disadvantage like everybody else. Since we didn't work in factories, our woman was working from home. So the impact on the workforce was less. But of course, we you know, had our woman got sick and then they work in... Um, you know, small houses with many family members. We had a lot, we lost the, the 
efficiency of our women working at the full speed. But the main challenge was uh, finding the yarn and material because the whole distribution channel was interrupted. And then getting the right colors, getting the yarn. So you want to make a collection. You don't have the colors. So we did whatever left in the kitchen. You know, you have like you open your fridge and you have two eggs and maybe one tomato. You're like, okay, what are we going to do? So you make it, you know, um, omelet with the tomato. So that was our challenge, but it was, it was okay. We survived. I would say that other than the material excess and country got locked down many times. And instead of making two collection, we made one collection that year. And we kind of, uh, when the wave comes to you, you duck in as what we did. <laughs> right. So did you reframe the business model to ensure more resiliency in the future, just in case something as disruptive comes up again? We hope that it's not going to, you know, this pandemic will be the last one, but we're dreamers, right? Um, what we did is, um, I think the resilience comes in the workforce. And we don't believe that you should restock, buy the material, you know. Uh, so whenever it comes, you scale your size. And then, as I said, we don't get ambitious. As long as we have the financial security, what we do is like, okay, let's scale it down to what we can do. So we continue the business, but we don't get ambitious to make the numbers get profitable. But let's make sure our workforce is like maintained. We don't lose any of our workforce and we don't have interruption in the uh, production. But let's not just go crazy to be big. Um, you know, look, these are the things that everybody's facing. I think being a small company is an advantage in situations like that because you can control and scale it quickly. Where when you're a big company, they have a bigger problems. So we still have the advantage of being a small size company that we can take quick actions and modify quickly in situations like that. And your customer base is primarily small boutiques and some large retailers? Correct. Yes, we have all over the world. You know, since we do resort wear, you know, small boutiques all over the world and those beautiful resort wares and some big retail stores like the Saks and um, Anthropology and we work mm -hmm. with Matches Fashion, they are also our big um, um, uh, retailers, online how, retailers. Yeah. How are you trying to get more attention from other retailers for the brand? Uh, I think we believe in this digital world, the digital marketing, and it's uh, word of mouth and our growth had been always organic, which I love that because it's real. There's nothing pushed. And then uh, right collaborations leads you to the right people. And a word of mouth is a huge thing. We do the trade shows. We do uh, use the platforms like Jour to attract, you know, after pandemic, nobody could travel. So you have to use what the technology offers you and make sure those platforms are the right ones to grow. So I think everybody is out there if they're searching something and if you're doing something good, they find you. But I would say digital marketing, right collaborations, and then being in the right platforms has been uh, very rewarding for us. Do you do trunk shows or pop-ups at the um, at upscale resort towns? Pop-ups? No, but you know, all of our good news is like we don't need to because we're pretty much in every uh, resort where it's so far right. that is in. They do represent us beautifully. But if there is, uh, to be honest with you, Scott, if I had time, I would love to do that kind of stuff. But when you're a small company, you cannot be everywhere. <laughs> so we don't do much of those yet. But if I have the time... I would love to do more, but I think right now being in the right places, in the right resorts, um, it serves a purpose. 
My Beachy Side has done this really exciting collaboration with Netflix hit series, Emily in Paris. You know, that's a big deal for small brands like My Beachy Side. How did that all come about? That was almost a blessing came from the, you know, sky. And then, uh, I mean, how friendships are precious, right? I mean, the uh, creator of the show, Darren Starr, is a very dear friend. And then it just never came to my mind that one day we could do collaboration with Emily in Paris. The first season passed by, but good news is the second season was starting in the resort, uh, one of the best resort places in right. Saint-Tropez. So we're like, okay, maybe we can do some resort where for um, my beachy side can do something for Emily in Paris. So the idea came, uh, I think because Emily was going into Saint-Tropez. <laughs> so this was, this was again, like all of a sudden, Great. And I think Netflix start doing um, content, uh, you know, like partners with the, you know, they're serious. Let's say they have other shows right? and they are giving the licensee rights to create um, products for the relevant uh, TV shows they make. So that was a great timing for us. So we were not only lucky to have Lily Collins wear one of our crochet pieces in the show, but we made this um, um, licensee agreement with Netflix uh, Viacom, I have to say, um, that we could do little capsule for them. And I think Respond was amazing. Um, I have to say we created such a cute collection. Um, How and many pieces it was were like, in the collection? It was 80 pieces. It, mm -hmm. You know, I think I went a little overboard. I got so excited. I'm like, okay, I'm not, I'm just going to do, you know, and it was a great motivation right after pandemic. It just put all our team together. Can you imagine our woman in part, you know, somewhere in this border of Syria, in the very rural part of Turkey, doing the collection for a Hollywood star that wearing what they, it was That's a amazing. great motivation for my team. I think I have to say it was a blessing and um, we cannot be thankful. I mean, I cannot be thankful enough. How did the artisans react? That was the, uh, uh, you know, your eyes would get watery when you see the pride they have and the coverage we had. And, um, you know, it's for those women seeing their work that nobody appreciated. It was just like they had to do that because of money or uh, expectations from them. All of a sudden, they are not the woman in need, but they are the artisan behind of that style gives them amazing empowerment and then the confidence and that's worth you know to me everything so so looking forward how do you want to grow in the next five years where do you want to go from here <laughs> look if we keep this enthusiasm we want to stay in the uh, beach lifestyle to me i think staying in the niche area what you know is the key and it's a big life beach life <laughs> you know then there's a home element of the beach lifestyle there's kids uh, but i think we're going to tap into home beach homes and that will be our next uh, adventure Mm -hmm. And it's going to be the same story, same kind of feel, but we have a lot of places to tap in. But we want to do what we're doing first well, uh, reach to a point that we're known and we're good at it, then we can tap into other areas. So that's where we want to go. And where can our listeners learn more about My Beachy Side? I think on our webpage, uh, mybeachyside.com. 
And we're happy to answer any question directly also. They can email us and they can read about our mission. They can see our beautiful pieces. They can see what the artisans are about and our, their working environment. Our webpage would be the best source. Gamze Addis, founder of My Beachy Side. Thank you so much for joining me on the show. Thank you, Scott, for the opportunity to talk about our mission and our little company. We appreciate it a lot. Thanks for listening to this episode of Facing the Giants. Please tell a friend about the show. Now that you know this show, go check out my other podcast, The Luxury Item. It's a podcast on the business of luxury and the people and companies that are shaping the future of the industry. You can find The Luxury Item wherever you found this podcast. Facing the Giants is a production of Silvertone Consulting. I'll be back soon with another episode.